1 Corinthians and chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. We are continuing our series through the book of Exodus and the mini-series through the Ten Commandments. This morning we are nearing the end in Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, one of the last commandments, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, sometimes this command is summarized, you shall not lie, don't tell a lie, But I'm not sure that that exactly captures the meaning. It does not say don't lie, period. This has to do with bearing false witness, notice that last phrase, against your neighbor. So certainly all lying is also condemned in other sections of scripture. But this particular commandment has to do with making stuff up about each other. What we say about each other needs to be true and rigorously true, almost ruthlessly true, because we have a very weird tendency to misrepresent each other. Um, so, of course, this means lying, but it, li- but it has to do specifically with the lies that we tell about each other. And this command is explained later in the law. In Exodus chapter 23, there is a long section on lies and how they need to be handled in community. Uh, just there in verse 1, it says, you shall not spread a false report. And that's the same kind of thing here that we see in the Ten Commandments. Don't spread a false report. Don't say things about people that is not true. Now, that seems straightforward, and so this is that point in the sermon where you begin to just hear the first part, and you start to relax, thinking, oh, good, because I'm not a liar, and so then you think, that's probably for that person over there, but this passage isn't for me, but hopefully we will all uh, begin to see, I have personally found this to be a very uh, challenging passage to study. A few years ago, I heard two ladies uh, arguing which is normal, good relationships, Mike and I argue, Libby and I argue, good relationships have arguments, that's just part of the, part of the gig. So the arguing wasn't the problem, 
but after this argument, one of the ladies wrote a letter about the argument and gave it to a third party who later passed that uh, uh, letter on to me. And what struck me, because I had heard the argument, what struck me was that the letter totally misrepresented what that first lady had said. She made the other lady sound kind of clueless. I mean, it was the same basic words and, the, and, and kind of a cartoonish almost sketch of what had happened in the argument. But uh, she made the other lady sound clueless and even mean in a couple of sections and made herself sound very mature in the retelling. And uh, I, now I had actually seen it happen. And so the, the letter was an obvious example of this particular commandment. It was an example of bearing false witness against your neighbor. And that story illustrates something that I'm sure we've all seen. Uh, people making themselves look better uh, by, look, by making other people look either incompetent or even shady in some way or even evil in some way. Uh, very common in relationships to hide the truth, shade the truth, leave out little details or bend reality a little bit, uh, exaggerate so that we sound better, uh, exaggerate or even under-report data you know, so that uh, we can avoid certain problems or so that we can make our side of the argument stronger tougher to argue against me if it was five instead of the reality it was three and I'm exaggerating so that it's harder to argue against me and that kind of things and and that stuff is really hard on relationships that is bearing false witness God created us for pure true good honest interactions and that kind of interaction is important in ordinary life uh, arguments and conflicts but also in the courts and I think that's what this command specifically has in mind. Exodus chapter 23 gives us another example of this. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and the righteous. Uh, Reliable courts are incredibly important. Every major civilization has created courts and uh, this is because people disagree and need some kind of mediation It's because people commit crimes and need to be punished. Uh, It's because people are accused of crimes and they need habeas corpus and due process. Um, We need good courts because the poor need advocates and the rich need checks and all of these things. So there are lots of good reasons for courts, uh, but we see courts all over the planet because human beings require courts. But a court is only good when it relies on truth, right? There's got to be truth in the courts. It's so frustrating when we see uh, somebody go to jail for something that they didn't do or when we see kind of a farce of a court, especially in uh, some other countries. We see people go through some kind of a court process, but we can, we can tell that there's uh, injustice happening here. One of the very first things that we hear about King David is that he set up a really good court system. Second uh, Samuel chapter 8, it's just right after he comes into power and God gives him these incredible promises. And it says, so David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people. That's what a good king does. That's what a good leader does. He isn't just some guy on a throne that amasses a lot of, uh, a lot of treasure and gets to go uh, in front of the army and this kind of a stuff. But a good king Like fundamentally, one of the first things that we hear about David is that he administered justice and equity to all of his people. What that means is that the courts worked. 
It means that widows were protected. It means that property rights were protected and things like this under David. And that created a good and safe place for those people to live, which reminds us of what we've seen throughout all the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are like a new Eden. It's a recreation. Uh, The curses have this horrible, deathly impact, but God creates a kingdom or a gathered people where his people are able to live and love and thrive together. And the Ten Commandments are part of how God does that, creating a safe and beautiful place for people to live. False witness, which is lying about people, misrepresenting people, false witness is kind of like the serpent sneaking right back into our midst. You imagine the difference between David who administered justice and equity. You had people taken care of. You had uh, children able to walk through the streets at night and so on because you had a good court system. You had justice that was being administered. You compare that to a period not too long before, just a couple of generations earlier, the period of the judges where everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that book is a horrible R-rated book. If you've ever read the book of of judges it's this terrible book people being chopped into pieces and there's prostitutes everywhere and it's a horrible scene with war people dying uh, people being victimized and so on so here comes david one of the first things he does is he makes things safe he makes a place where people are able to interact with each other in a safe way that's what a good king does that's what god does and that's the kind of thing that only works if truth is valued Truth has got to be valued, not false witness. And all of this flows right out of God's character. We see a lot of things about God that apply to our relationships with each other. And the first one here is just that God is truthful. He really is. In John 14, 6, it's the famous phrase where he says, I, this is Jesus speaking, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, look, he is the walking, talking definition of truth. It's not even just dictionary, look in the dictionary, what is truth, and you see Jesus. He is, he is truth. He is the walking, talking definition of truth. What that means is that everything that comes out of his mouth is true. It is rock solid, take it to the bank, true. It's insightful, and it is true. God embodies truth. Now, almost all of God's attributes are communicable, which means that since God is like this, He wants his children, us, his adopted kids, to also be like this. And so if God is truthful, then he would like his family to be truthful. He tells us to be truth tellers. Now, the Pharisees once were accusing Jesus of not telling the truth. He was making all kinds of claims that were feeling a little heretical to them because they just thought he was some guy. And so uh, they accused Jesus of actually breaking this commandment. They accused him of bearing false witness about himself And it's a long section in John 8. I'm just going to read one sentence of the defense of Christ. He says, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. In other words, he's saying, I'm the son of God. I came right from the right hand of the father, and that's exactly where I'm going back. Therefore, since I'm God, everything I say is true. It is absolutely true. And so when I talk about myself, and then he makes this really interesting argument, because later in the Pentateuch, Uh, somebody can't be accused of something unless there's two witnesses. So what he says is, I'm saying this and the father is saying this. So we got two witnesses here that are both attesting to the fact that I'm God and everything that I say is true. So it's an interesting self-defense of Christ uh, when they charged him with bearing false witness. You can trust God. 
You can trust him. God will never lie to you. God never lies. He never shades the truth. He never leaves out some little piece of evidence that would make him look bad or something like this. He tells us exactly how it is with himself, with us, and he wants to see the same thing all throughout his family. God also cares deeply about justice. So all of this is flowing out of God's character. God is truthful and God is also just and he cares about justice. Deuteronomy 10:17 says, "For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing." Now that's an interesting and important section of scripture because so many other religions, people have to propitiate the gods. We bring him some food items or we bring him some animals or something like this in order to hope that he might kind of decide whimsically, okay, I'll stop punishing you with this flood or something. So people are bribing him and giving him stuff and offering him things in order to hope that you can get him on his, uh, get on his good side. But God says about himself that he's awesome, he's mighty, he's the Lord of lords, and he takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and for the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. You see, the the reason that God wants justice in the courts is because God is an honorable judge himself. The reason that God wants truthful witnesses in the courts is because God is a truth teller. He is that kind of God. Deuteronomy 32, 4. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. That's a great verse. Deuteronomy 32, 4. God cares about justice and so justice needs to be important to us. So he's basically saying, okay, here are my attributes. Here's what I'm like as a judge. Here's what I'm like as a king. Now, this is the kind of thing that I want to see happening throughout the church, throughout my people, throughout the kingdom. So Deuteronomy 16 says, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God has given you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality and you shall not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous justice and only justice. You shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So beautiful and important instructions for what the courts need to be like. So there's all kinds of reasons for pure truth telling. God is truthful. God is just. And also God exposes hidden things. Now, isn't that what a court does? Uh, One of the reasons we need courts is to figure out the truth. It's confusing or it's hidden and we're not totally sure. It's a problem that can't be solved. And one of the purposes of the courts is to find out the truth. Now, sometimes courts fail at this. That's true. People People go to prison for stuff they didn't do. Um, yeah, people lie in court so that judgments will be more favorable to them. Uh, so it's true that as long as human beings are involved, then even a good, even a good court system can be unjust. And that's why in Christian circles, it's so important that we have an alternate culture here. We have a place where people are ruthlessly honest. And by ruthless, I mean looking deep into myself and saying, have I really been honest here? Or have I exaggerated something? Have I shaded something? Have I bent things a little bit in order for my side to sound a little bit uh, better 
God wants the truth revealed. He is a revealer of hidden things. This is an important part of Jesus coming back. When you think about the end times, you think about what heaven's going to be like and what our experience is going to be like when Jesus Christ comes back. Did you know that one of the things we hear over and over again in Scripture, one of the first things he's going to do is expose things that have been hidden. It's very interesting, but it's reassuring to many of you who may have been victims of injustice in some way. And there has not been any kind of earthly result of that that's been satisfying. You can be sure that in space-time history, Jesus Christ will come back and reveal things that have been hidden. Luke 12, 2, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Woo! The very last words of Ecclesiastes, book filled with wisdom, and one of the last things that the teacher says in Ecclesiastes 12:14, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. God's people will be vindicated in space-time. It is going to happen. 2 Timothy 4.8, There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, with the Lord, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. You see, all these things that are hidden, things that haven't been seen, are going to come out and people will see them. Now, this has huge implications, doesn't it? Now, it's a little disturbing and it's a little reassuring, kind of both at the same time, kind of the message of the Bible, right? First of all, uh, this truth gives us hope. Uh, we know that, gosh, you know, these things have not been satis- satisfied. These things haven't been resolved in a satisfying way. Incredibly frustrating when we're a victim of injustice or when things just don't feel like they ever settled out quite right or when somebody does something horrible and the apology only covers about one quarter of what actually happened there or all of these kinds of things that go back and forth. It gives us hope and it helps us to endure that Jesus is taking care of all of that. He knows all of those things and it is his job to be the judge of all of those things. It also convicts us to live in the light now because we know that hidden things are going to come out. There's no such thing as a private room throughout the church. With our awareness, there's no such thing as a private room because the stuff we say and the stuff that we do uh, is known and is seen by God and will be revealed. And finally, it inspires us to pursue justice for other people because God does not want things hidden. He is a revealer of truth. And we also, as Christians, follow him in wanting to see justice done for other people. So our hearts as Christians go out for the weak and go out to the poor, go out to people that have been displaced, because that's what God is like. That's what God cares about. We see events happening in Ferguson right now uh, that need to be uh, concerning to us as Christians. Christians need to be at the forefront of helping that community to heal and helping to create a police force that racially represents the people that they serve. Otherwise, you have these misunderstandings, you have these, uh, these problems and so on. Christians need to be at the forefront of helping justice to happen in that place. This is in our own backyard, so to speak, here in America. Another, uh, another news item that's been happening uh, lately is Ebola in Africa. I was reading this morning that in Monrovia, There are 30 to 40 people sent away every day from hospitals because the hospitals are too small. Uh, And I just find that to be heartbreaking. I'm hoping that I don't lose it as I'm going through this. But, you know, these are real people. 
these are people, these are moms and dads that have these sicknesses and they can't take care of themselves and they're dying well over 90% because they can't even get uh, basic, basic care that they need. Little kids that are dying, body bags filled. Um, are we going to do something about this? Or are we just going to think, well, it's not really happening in my backyard, so that's too bad for them that their medical system is uh, not capable of handling this. Hopefully it doesn't come to Roseville. Well, then we'll, then we'll have trouble. But look, God cares about the poor. God cares about the marginalized. God cares about the disenfranchised. And we are on the hook as the richest people that have ever lived for injustices that happen throughout this planet. The planet has gotten a lot smaller. And the incredible heroic missionary work going on now with Samaritan's Purse and other organizations, people that are going out there and they're basically saying, hey, if I perish, I perish. But this is what Jesus would do, so I'm going. Really amazing. So at least, you know, giving money to some of these organizations and uh, thinking about other ways that we can um, that we can that we can help where justice is absent god sees the reasons why the real reasons why not the excuses of oh i didn't have time or oh i didn't know he sees the real reasons why injustice happens 1 Corinthians 4, 5, the Lord, talking about the Lord who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. So we care about truth because God cares. He is a truth teller. He cares about justice. He exposes hidden things and he asks us to go after the weak and the poor. And that's another aspect of this particular commandment perhaps the most important part of it uh, of all which is why mike read first corinthians 13 this morning god treats people with love and dignity that's why we don't lie about each other that's why we don't misrepresent each other so that you look silly we're having an argument and i'm talking to a third person i make you look kind of silly that's why i don't do that that's why that's evil is because god treats human beings made in his image Even if they're idiots, God treats people with love and with dignity. 1 John 4, 16, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Now, whenever you're reading 1, 2, 3 John, you just got to imagine this 80-plus-year-old apostle, the last living apostle, you know, and he's exiled, and he's just like this old, cuddly, great guy, this, you know, this old man, and just imagine him, right? Imagine somebody twice my age who just says, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. That's interesting that at the end of his life, at the end of his life, of all the things that he wants to communicate, it has to do with God's love. That's what First, Second, Third John is all about. It's challenging for preachers and teachers to pray through because he just keeps repeating himself. God is love, God is love, God is love, God is love. That's the last thing that he wanted to say before he died was to make sure that we understood that of all the theology that I've ever taught and thought about, and I've, been, I've walked with Christ. You know, this is John. This is John, one of the three. And of all the things that he has to say at the very end is that God loves people. He really loves people. And part of loving people means that we protect people's reputations, even, and I would say especially, when they don't deserve it. Because that's called grace, right? Grace. 
So when we think about slander and gossip, we think, well, I wasn't slandering or gossip because everything I said was true. <laughs> that person was a, a, a fool and did something silly. Well, look, slander doesn't have to do with telling lies about each other. What, th- what slander is, is defamation. It has to do with making someone look bad when I'm talking about them with another party. And the Bible cares about that kind of thing. The Bible says that is wrong. This is why in 1 Corinthians we have all kinds of protections. Like if you have a problem with a brother, if a brother has sinned against you, go to him one-on-one because then we can contain the reputation. This person's reputation and your reputation, maybe it's a misunderstanding, whatever it is, you both are going to look a little silly for a while as you're trying to work this out. So keep it contained one-on-one. You can't figure out how to deal with that. Bring in a third party. Let's keep it contained. Let's keep it closed so that everybody's reputations are protected. Still can't figure it out? Let's go to the elders. If people still are not confessing their sin, that's when we bring it out in front of the church. But we even do that in a dignified way. It doesn't go on some you know, email chain, like you never believe what so-and-so did, but it's a sober, dignified environment. You may have seen this once or twice in the church where you finally come to a point of needing to confront somebody publicly like that. It is dignified because God wants to see us treat each other with love and dignity. That's how he treats us. He takes rebels, people who have rejected him, and makes them family members. (laughs) And he wants to see that same kind of grace applied in in the way that we handle each other's reputations. So this is important. You know, it's a, it's a, it, it, if a couple of people need to be brought into a conflict because we're not totally sure how to handle this and we're dealing with it in a proactive way, like we're not just venting and airing and that kind of stuff, but we're actually saying, okay, how do we deal with this? Then we bring some people in. Uh, so I'm not saying if there's some conflict you're in, don't tell anybody. I'm not saying that at all. We need help. This is why God gives us court systems. This is why God gives us church government. Is we need help with our spiritual lives and with our relationships. But we keep that stuff buttoned down because we value the human life and the image of God that is in people who may not even deserve to be treated well, and yet we protect their dignity from themselves. I've told you a story like this before. My grandfather was a, was a really godly man, a church-planting type of guy, and he did some things in his last... Uh, six months or so of life that were not dignified. He had uh, dementia and uh, he was not uh, thinking the way that he was for all of his life. And and my dad was calling me during that period because my dad needed someone to to talk to about this because my dad was seeing all this. And I finally had to say to my dad, and this I don't know if this was a very nice thing to say to my dad, but I did. I just said, Dad, I do not want to hear these stories about Grandpa anymore. Uh, uh, it's, it's undi- I, and I told my dad that I will not tell his grandkids uh, when he starts to do stuff like that. When he gets older, I'm going to do my very best to just kind of protect him from himself. I mean, stuff that he's actually doing, you know, to protect him from himself. Um, during those last stages. And, uh, you know, I I don't want to overstate this because sometimes, you know, we have to laugh about stuff. Uh, My Uncle John, you know, wore a watch on his foot for a long time because he was, yeah, and it's funny. No, that's it. You got to laugh about things. He would put on five shirts because he was cold and that kind of stuff because he started to lose his mind. And so 
it was so sad that you know that you had to get a, you had to laugh a little bit. So I'm not saying that we o- overdo this, but uh, we need to treat people with love and dignity, especially when there are conflicts and sin involved. So this is important to God. It is one of the Ten Commandments. It's reinforced all the way through Scripture. Um, if this is so important to God, why then do we keep lying? <laughs> why do we keep misrepresenting the truth? And I know some of you are like, well, I'm not a liar. Okay, but all of us struggle with uh, the temptation uh, to misrepresent things. And uh, so why do we do this? And I'm going to suggest six different reasons that we lie, and I'm sure you could come up with more. I think we lie in order to make ourselves look better, just to be frank. We make ourselves look better when we lie about what other people did. There's a conflict, and if I can make the other person look incompetent or look a little bit shady, then I come off the innocent party, and of course they're going to take my side because I was victimized by this and so on. We lie in order to make ourselves uh, look better, like that letter that I told you about at the beginning of the sermon. It comes from a desire to make ourselves look better by making the other person uh, look incompetent. Another reason we lie is because we like grumbling. We like complaining about stuff. It's sometimes hard to get along with people. It just is. Uh, We don't like our situation, and so instead of, in a proper way, lamenting about it, and when we talk to others uh, fighting for joy together and looking for restoration, uh, instead we get a quick hit of satisfaction uh, by getting together and kind of rolling our eyes, like, hey, can you believe this? Of course, he did that again, and that type of a thing. Um, another reason we lie and bear false witness is because sometimes there's a perverted pleasure um, from feeling strong. This is the bully syndrome, taking advantage of the weak. It's the abuse of power scenario. Why do bullies bully? Because it feels good to be powerful. Um, If I can push you around, then I'm better than you. And there may even be more psychology involved there. You can't hurt me if I can push you around. Um, And so God does not want any playground bullying among his people. Uh, Race relations, poor and rich situations. It's interesting that during the last recession, the upper 1% of wealth in our country became wealthier. And that's not necessarily an injustice because you look at individual situations, well, I just I bought a house and it increased in value. So that's not necessarily an injustice. But when you think about how many people who were poor couldn't keep up with payments and ended up going into bankruptcy, so you have these really cheap houses and a lot of really wealthy people were like, this is awesome, bought these things. And about five or six years later, they're able to sell these things off at a huge profit. When that's happening throughout a culture, you've got to think, gosh, is this just? Is this just that in situations like this, we've got a scenario where poor people get poorer and rich people get richer? Uh, not necessarily evil, but when these kinds of things happen en masse, Christians need to have their radar up and say, hang on a second, that doesn't sound like justice. That doesn't sound like a culture of people that care about the poor, that care about disenfranchised, that care about the single mom that can't quite make all of the payments. Well, too bad. Uh, We're going to make, you know, 30 grand off of the house you had to foreclose on and and we'll move on our way without ever having to engage the the actual troubles that are happening in the society. Um, So there are all kinds of ways that we misrepresent the truth and do it for a lot of reasons, to make ourselves look better, to complain, and to grumble, 
And we get this perverted pleasure from being strong. Also, blame shifting. We see, we see this right in the beginning where God came to Adam and said, so now, hang on, I, I said that you shouldn't eat here, and you did. And the first thing he says, well, the woman you gave me made me in that kind of a thing. The blame shifting, you know, I didn't do it. It's not my fault. And we do this in order to escape the penalties and the consequences that we would otherwise have to face. Um, and that's another reason we don't like the consequences of telling the truth. Truth can sometimes be very hard-hitting. And we don't really want uh, to experience the consequences of telling the truth. We may be afraid of going to prison or getting a spank or having to apologize. And so we avoid these things by misrepresenting the truth. We may be afraid that you'll be mad at me if I actually honestly answer the question that you just asked me. And so I avoid the consequences of a conflict by lying, by misrepresenting reality. Uh, sometimes we lie in order to hurt people when they have hurt us. We kind of feel a little bit justified. You hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you. And you hurt me in this particular way, I'm going to hurt you with words. I'm going to hurt your reputation. And I'm going to hurt you and hurt you and hurt you again. This is what happened with Potiphar's wife. Uh, she was offended, she was rejected, and she went out and lashed out at Joseph. Uh, in order to bring a false accusation against him. And this kind of a thing happens all the time, seething from some kind of hurt and lashing out in some way. And you might think you're excused from that because you've never actually hit anyone or thrown anything at somebody. But, oh, the tongue. That tongue can, be, can, can whip people into shape pretty quick. All kinds of reasons that we lie. So let's say that this is maybe a little convicting, how do we avoid this sin? The Bible tells us to kill sin. How do we go about killing this particular sin? If I can see in myself, and as I'm preaching this sermon, I can see some very convicting things in here that I need to think about. As we were going through the confession a little while ago, I was sitting there saying, yeah, I have broken this commandment many times and apologizing for that. So let's say you're in a similar uh, situation. What can we do in order to kill this sin? And so, first of all, I would say, trust God to save. Trust God to save. Let me explain what I mean here. We are often victims of injustice or things that are super frustrating. But, you know, God promises to bring all things to justice in the end. And we don't like to wait for justice. Uh, but this is what it means to be a Christian, to hope in the return of Christ when all things will be put right. Our problem is that we want things put right now. <laughs> We want it to feel good now. We want it to be right, right now. But Psalm 9, we need to hear this. Psalm 9, verses 7 through 9 says, The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of troubles. He is. He's a stronghold in times of trouble. Trusting God to save is not just about looking forward in hope that someday things will be put right. That is true. But God is making the church into a wonderful and beautiful place now, a place where people are loved. What exactly is slander? Have you thought about, you know, why do people slander? Well, the reason that we slander each other is because we don't like what somebody is doing because it's... I don't know, it may seem insensitive or it's just not how we would do it or whatever it may be. We don't like what someone is doing and so we say things about them with our friends. But you know, Christian community 
is a recreated Eden where slander and gossip have no place. Christians are people who welcome strangers into their midst. Christians are even people who love their enemies. And that kind of environment is risky. It may not feel safe at first. And that's the irony. Here is God creating this safe and beautiful place for us. And he tells us, here's exactly how it needs to be. And we think, that seems a little bit too risky. I'm going to make my own kind of community here where we keep all the weirdos out. Let's keep the dangerous people. Let's keep out the people that we don't like, the annoying kind of people. Let's keep them out. We think that a good community means keeping people out that we don't get along with very well. But Christian community does not rely on cliques to create the safe and beautiful place that God wants for us. God asks us to follow his very risky ways. He followed these ways himself and died for them. And so they are risky ways. And he says, that's the kind of thing I would like you to do as we hope in ultimate justice for God to sort out the consequences. First Peter two twenty three, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So trust God to save. We do not need to save ourselves by building our own kind of fellowship. We need to do it on God's terms, and God's terms are risky. That's the interesting thing, isn't it? He is rebuilding and recreating this environment that, that is safe for us and beautiful for us, and, yes, it's, and yet it's incredibly risky, and it includes a lot of waiting for God to act. And that doesn't feel very comfortable to us. And so we set those things aside and we decide to carve out our own kind of fellowship. The amazing thing about that is that you see churches split and then split and then split and then split because we've created this perfect place where everybody has to be getting along with me. Otherwise, I'm taking my basketball and going home. And that is not how God created his church to be. Trust God to save. You don't need to save yourself. You can't save yourself. And if you try, you'll leave a wake of broken relationships behind you. Trust God to save. And when things are not working out, go back to God and trust God to save. Follow his ways. They're risky, but they're good. Another way to avoid this sin, apart from just obviously knowing that it is a sin and and being more aware of what it is, but another way to avoid this sin and to begin hacking away so that we can kill it is to be a rigorous, ruthless truth teller. Thomas Aquinas wrote a famous book called the Summa Philosophica. And in that book, he presents his, his main uh, theological ideas and philosophical ideas. And he does it in a particular format that people have followed for hundreds of years since then. The interesting thing about Aquinas is that if you want to read the best arguments against Thomas Aquinas... You have to read Thomas Aquinas. The best arguments against Aquinas are articulated by Aquinas because this was part of his process is making sure that he thoroughly understood the counterpoints to what he was trying to say and clearly and honestly represented uh, represented those positions. It had to do with morality to him. It was the most ethical thing to do to say, look, I believe this, but I realize you disagree with me and here's what you think, right? And the other person is like, yeah, actually, you said it better than I could have said it myself. And then Aquinas would say, okay, but here's what I say against that. And they go back and they have this very interesting and respectful dialogue. We would all do well to apply the Summa Philosophica to our arguments. 
the stuff that happens in our bedrooms, in our kitchens, in the quiet corners of this church, uh, that we are rigorously and ruthlessly trying to accurately and truthfully explain what other people think, uh, trying hard to understand each other, uh, and then we can have fair disagreements. So this is another way, uh, another way to avoid this sin, is to examine myself and be sure that I am really telling the truth. If I understood you correctly, I, I realize we're having this conflict. I want to make sure that I really understand where you're coming from. Uh, and that makes a relationship possible. That makes a good and safe place where people can live and love and thrive. One last thing here, a way to hack away at this particular sin, is to be people lovers, and especially weak people, especially uh, odd people, to be people lovers. You see, lies work when uh, nobody can defend themselves against them. And some of us spend a lot of time creatively thinking about how to tell exactly the right lie so that, uh, so that it'll have the kind of effect it needs to have. Um, somebody may be so poor that they can't defend themselves properly. Um, or maybe that person isn't there at all. We call that talking behind the back where the person isn't even there and can't say, hang on a second, that's not what I said. What I said was, well, no, they're not there. They can't say that. So we can say whatever we want about them behind their back. And so they are weak in this sense. And Christians love weak people. Christians love poor people. Christians love the disenfranchised, bringing them right into the middle of the community. And we need to do that in our interactions with each other, actually loving people. So is there someone in here, uh, maybe that you have had a longstanding sort of problem with, some deep-seated trouble you haven't been able to figure out? Have you prayed for that person? Just in a loving sort of way, God bless this person. Uh, bless their family, bless their marriage, bless their business, whatever it may be. Learning how to love people and then maybe going over to their house with a, with a meal or with flowers. Hey, I know we're kind of having trouble here, but uh, I've just, just been thinking about you and I want to make sure you know that I love you. Uh, we haven't worked it out, I, I realize that, but I just want to make sure that you know that I love you. Leave them a little potted plant or whatever, whatever it, whatever it may be. How do we love each other, um, especially in the midst of difficulties? We express this kind of love by treating each other with dignity. Um, so let me just conclude here with this. Ten commandments are incredibly challenging, aren't they? As we go through them one by one, you think, well, I, I thought I had the lying thing down, but I hope as we have gone through this, you've seen nooks and crannies of your own heart that may not be quite in order. Uh, the Ten Commandments touch us in very tender places. Most of the Ten Commandments push us way out of our comfort zone, and we have all kinds of excuses and explanations for why we don't do that kind of a thing. Uh, I'm not breaking this command in some egregious way, and so leave me alone about those private areas in my heart. Um, and so uh, the word of God has this way of piercing right into the middle of that stuff and calling us to completely revamp the way that we interact with God and with other people. So let me send you here into worship with these words from 1 Peter 3. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing.
Would you stand with us?